Well, I really count it a privilege to be with you this evening, and uh, it's an interesting subject, the Christian man at work. <clears throat> and I'm guessing that within this room, there's a fairly wide range of work situations and environments represented here. I suspect there, there are some of you that work in an office setting, and uh, some of you perhaps work from home. Some of you maybe sit in front of a computer screen most of the day. Others of you maybe are much more active than that. Um, some of you maybe have a lot of people interaction and maybe some of you not so much. So um, the intent here is to take a look at what Scripture says about... Ah, get our recording going. <laughs> what Scripture says about working and uh, as you might imagine, Scripture says a lot. So we are really going to just touch on a few high points and... Uh, there is so much in this subject, but what I'm going to try to do is cover this in about 45 minutes and then leave about 30 minutes or so at the end for, uh, for any questions or, or, or comments that, that you might have. So, uh, so again, my name is Steve Packard, and uh, let me just give you a, l a little bit of background. Um, I graduated in 1972 with a degree in mechanical engineering. Some of you are saying, wow, this guy's old. <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> and that happened to be during the Vietnam War. And many of you probably don't know too much about the draft, but the, uh, the draft in the 70s was uh, uh, where you'd get a letter in the mail from the Selective Service uh, indicating that uh, Uncle Sam wants you. Well, I got such a letter in March of my senior year of college, and uh, they called me for my pre-induction physical, and sadly, I passed it. Um, so I knew that as soon as I graduated, I was going to be drafted, and uh, I did not want to be in the Army or the Marines and be in Southeast Asia being shot at. So what I did was I enlisted in the Air Force. And uh, I served in the Air Force as a lab technician for four years, and it was during that time that the Lord called me uh, to himself. So I was 23 when I came to Christ, and the Lord began to drastically change the orientation of my life. And one of the things he did is he gave me a really strong interest in studying the Bible. So in 1976, at age 26, uh, I decided to enroll in a Christian graduate school called Regent College. It's in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I spent one academic year there uh, earning a diploma in biblical studies. In the very first week of class, I sat down next to this cute young gal named Barbara, and uh, she would later become my wife. In fact, we got engaged that spring, and I set a wedding date in September even though I was a student and unemployed, so I needed to find a job. <laughs> so I spent that summer searching and in God's providence. I went to work at uh, Owens Corning in the summer of 1977, and that was just four weeks before our wedding. And I remained with Owens Corning for 39 years. These days, that's, that's kind of unusual to stay with a company that long. I retired in 2016. So let me give you a little breakdown of, of what those uh, 39 years look like. Uh, again, I'm doing this just to kind of give you a flavor for where I'm coming from so you'll have some idea on some of these points that, that I'm going to talk about. But uh, my career started as a process engineer uh, in Huntingdon, Pennsylvania, and uh, I did that um, 77 to 79. And then in 79, I was promoted to process engineering supervisor, which was interesting because I was then supervising the engineers who had taught me how to do my job. They were older than me, more experienced than me, but I became their supervisor. That was an interesting challenge. Then uh, I became a production supervisor. I kind of went on to the, 
uh, manufacturing side of the fence, did that for three years. I had four shift supervisors that reported to me and about uh, 90 or so hourly employees. It was a 24-7 uh, uh, operation making glass fibers. Then in 1986, I accepted a transfer to a shingle manufacturing plant in Irving, Texas. And I served there as operations manager for 18 years. There, I also had four shift supervisors around the clock uh, working for me and uh, around 75 or so uh, hourly employees. And then in 2004, I made another change. Uh, and this one was not really of my making. Um, that's a whole other story, which I'll save it during the Q&A time if you want to hear it. But uh, <laughs> the Lord took me out of my position and uh, I went on to a division engineering staff as a senior process engineer, and that was really interesting work. I really enjoyed doing it. I was working with 14 shingle manufacturing plants scattered across the United States. So I, last 12 years of my career, I did a lot of travel. And so this kind of captures the, the roofing side of the business. I was in the roofing side of the business for 30 years, and that picture over on the left, that's a picture of one of the production lines at, in Irving. What you're seeing there are rolls of glass fiber mat. It's a thin mat comprised of, of glass. And what we would do is take that mat and we would run it through an asphalt coater and then apply crushed stone to it, press the stone into the asphalt, uh, cool it off, run it into a, a die cutter and stamp out the shape of shingles. And lo and behold, you wind up with something that looks like that. So, so that's a little bit of, of my background. Now, as far as our topic is concerned, the Christian man at work. You know, that kind of brings us to some important questions. And the questions are these. How is your faith in Christ impacting the way you are conducting yourself at work right now? Just think about that for a second. How is the fact that you are a believer, a follower of Christ, how does that change what you do at work? How does it impact you? And then secondly, kind of a related question, do your unbelieving coworkers see a clear difference in you as a believer? Would they be able to pick you out of the crowd as someone who is, is different in orientation? And then that leads us to uh, the third question. This is the key one that we really want to consider tonight, and that's uh, how should your faith in Christ and the truth of his word uh, be impacting your daily work? What should it look like? And so this evening, I want to explore five key biblical principles for the Christian man at work. And again, my plan is to, to try to end around uh, 8 o'clock or so, and then uh, we'll have some time for Q&A. But no guarantees. <laughs> so, first key principle is this. Realize that work is God's design for us, and it, it is his means uh, to bring him glory. It's a means that he has given us to bring him glory you know, a number of years ago, I read uh, a very interesting book. Uh, it was published by the Navigators, and it was entitled, Your Work Matters to God. Perhaps some of you have run across it, co-authored by Doug Sherman and William Hendricks, Jr. And one of the main points of that book is that as Christians, one of the things that we tend to do is to compartmentalize our lives. And, and what they meant by that was that we have a tendency to look at the spiritual side of our life on one hand, and the secular side of our life on the other. So on the spiritual side of life, that's, that's all the important things. You know, that's the things that we do, like spending quality time in personal Bible study and prayer. It's attending worship. It's serving in the church, you know, maybe teaching a Sunday school class or, or helping the youth group or engaging with a friend in one-on-one -on -one discipleship. 
participating in fellowship with other believers. And we value those things because they're commanded in Scripture. It's what we're called to do. And they are things that it's just obvious that when we're doing those things, we're glorifying God. So we tend to put those kind of way up here. But we also tend to look at the secular side of the fence as having much less value. Uh, perhaps you have uh, heard people make comments like these, and this is believers speaking. I work because I don't have a choice. I have to pay the bills. I'd really rather be fishing. My work is drudgery and boring. My work is stressful and exhausting. I have a boss who's really aggravating. My coworkers are profane and annoying. I live for the weekend. I can't wait for retirement. How many more years? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had those kinds of thoughts or, or, or heard those kinds of comments made, but you know, work is often viewed as, as kind of a necessary evil, uh, as it's, it's kind of seen as a result of the fall, which really isn't true, uh, and as something merely to provide financial support so that we can spend our time on the important stuff, the spiritual stuff that I was talking about. Well, the reality is that from the beginning, God created us to work. Consider the words of Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And this, of course, was before the fall. Granted, as a result of Adam's sin, work became difficult. Work became frustrating. Uh, work became toil. Uh, that is certainly true. But it's important to not lose sight of the fact that we were made to work. That's the assignment that Adam was given. That's the assignment that all of us uh, are given. And it's, it's the way that we glorify God. And on that note, if you think more specifically about uh, glorifying God in our work, just consider what the Apostle Paul expressed in Colossians 3.17. He said, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is that how you feel in your work day? Maybe you're having a bad day, a frustrating day. Do you stop and think, wow, I really need to be doing everything I'm doing today to God's glory. That's, that's what we're called to do. It's a command. That's what we're designed to do. So what we do throughout the course of the day really does matter to God. You know, another way you could think of your work is that it's ministry. Do you ever think of it that way? It's uh, ministry just as much as serving one another here is, is ministry. In fact, we could argue that based on the number of hours you spend during the week, your work is a very significant part of your ministry, perhaps the biggest part. Again, have you ever thought about it that way? So, there's a challenge for you. Keep that in mind during the course of your workday. You are doing what God created you to do, and it's being done for his glory. It's an essential part of your ministry. But then the question is, well, how exactly do we perform our work in a way that glorifies God? So, you know, what does that look like? Well, that brings us to uh, a second principle. We need to serve God by serving our earthly bosses well. You serve God by serving your earthly boss well. <laughs> well, okay, you might ask, well, what does that look like? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question for us, and I would invite you, if you've got your Bible with you, turn to Colossians chapter 3. And in verse 22, we discover that first of all, What we must do is do what our boss asks us to do. 
Let me see. I'm getting ahead of myself here. There we go. So look at uh, chapter 3, verse 22. He says, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, in the Roman economy, when you think about slaves and masters, that would be very much parallel to, uh, to bosses and, and workers here in, in, in our culture. So think along those lines. Slave in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. So in some things obey your boss? No, in all things. <laughs> Now, you might be thinking, well, the Bible does qualify this statement, and that's certainly true. You know, if your boss asks you to do something that is immoral or illegal, you know, your responsibility is to obey God, not your boss, and so you need to respectfully decline. Acts 4, chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts 4, verse 19, when Peter and John were told by the authorities in Jerusalem to stop proclaiming Christ, the two apostles responded by saying this, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So what God has commanded us to do takes precedence, takes priority. But most of the time, most days, your boss is not going to be telling you to do things that are illegal or immoral. And so our obligation is uh, to do what he asks us to do. But in addition to that, <coughs> Paul continues by instructing us to perform your work from the heart. The verse continues, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know, think about it. It's kind of easy, isn't it? When your boss gives you an assignment that you don't really like or that you don't really agree with, it's, it's easy to kind of be half-hearted about it, just kind of go through the motions and do just enough to, to, to get by, um, minimal effort. <laughs> well, the second half of verse 22, this, uh, this business of uh, not serving with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, uh, really takes us to a whole different level. This is a call to work hard, to do your best. You know, if we're performing a task out of the fear of the Lord, that is, out of reverence for him, out of obedience to him, we're not going to do it thoughtlessly or carelessly. Instead, we're going to work with a sincere heart. And that's because we must recognize that ultimately God is the one for whom you are working. Look at how the passage continues. Let me back up to verse 22 and, and read down through 24. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, do your work heartily. In other words, work hard. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. But who's your boss? You've got a human boss, but ultimately you are working for the Lord. And that's just, a, I think, a really crucial concept when you're thinking about uh, the responsibilities that you've been given in the workplace. You know, it makes no difference who your earthly employer is or how difficult or how complex the task is that he's given you to do. The proper perspective is to see your assignment as coming uh, directly from the Lord. And so it's to be taken seriously and done with diligence and done uh, with an attitude of giving glory to God. But you may be thinking, well, this is all well and good, but you don't know my boss. 
He is profane and rude, and he runs the operation like a dictator. Anybody ever run across somebody like that? <laughs> He's just a really hard guy to work for. <laughs> well, for 13 years, this was a part of my Irving experience, for 13 years I had a manager who was exactly like that, really difficult person uh, to, to work for. But by God's grace, as I was talking to a brother in Christ about my situation, he pointed me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and from that passage, my friend challenged me to know that since your service is to the Lord, the character and leadership style of your human boss are irrelevant. So I would invite you to, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look what this says. 1 Peter 2. Starting at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And you'll notice there's a marginal note that says, or perverse. It's kind of the same idea. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You know, I think everybody enjoys working for a manager who's good and gentle. There are bosses out there that are really a pleasure to work for, um, but not all of them are, are that way. Uh, one who is characterized, as it says here, as being unreasonable or perverse, as it says in the marginal note, uh, is a whole different matter. I checked Webster's and I looked at and I found a, a list of synonyms for that word perverse, and this is what it uh, includes: words like wrong-headed, inflexible, hard-headed, cranky, obstinate, opinionated, stubborn, unbending, and unyielding. Again, do you know anybody like that? You know, perhaps some of you do. This is the type of manager who harshly and perhaps angrily declares how it's going to be without seeking the opinions of anybody else or considering any alternatives. Kindness, fairness, reasonableness are foreign concepts to such a leader. But how are we commanded to respond to a boss like that? What's it say in these verses? How do you respond to a boss who's just really giving you a hard time? Maybe he just doesn't like you. How do you respond to him? What's the verse say? The little word starts with R, ends in T. You treat him with respect. Really? <laughs> yeah. Look again. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. You know, we're, verse 18, we're, we're to be submissive with all respect. With all respect, <laughs> we're to do what the boss wants us to do. Again, assuming it's not immoral or, or illegal. And uh, he has so much to say here about patient endurance. And in fact, uh, if you continue in the chapter, what, what Peter does next is he holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as, as kind of the ultimate example of one who suffered unjustly. And what did Jesus do? He suffered patiently. <laughs> Uh, he, he entrusted himself to God as one who judges righteously. Uh, he handled that uh, mistreatment. 
And so God is pleased when we do that as well. When you are being mistreated, misunderstood at work, and you bear up under it, you're patient under it, and you continue to show your boss respect, that is pleasing to the Lord. So, we're to realize that uh, work is God's design for us to bring him glory. That's point number one. And we glorify him by serving our earthly boss well. And that brings us to a third principle, which is this. Maintain a balanced life by seeing work as gift, not gain. You might think, well, that's kind of strange terminology. <laughs> With that reference to gift and gain, I'm, I'm borrowing some terminology from a great little book that perhaps some of you have read. It's, it's in the... Uh, uh, the church bookstore. It's a book by David Gibson entitled Living Life Backward. There's an interesting title. It's a book that's very, uh, provides a very helpful overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Gibson describes kind of the, the central problem expressed in the book of Ecclesiastes this way, that most people live life as though it will never end. You know, just consider what your, what your friends and neighbors are doing. They're, they're just they're building their castles, they're uh, buying their boats, they're just living life as though it's never going to end. They're investing their time and energy into things that have no eternal value. That's what Gibson means when he talks about pursuing life as, as gain. It's just, what can I get? But as believers, we need to live life based on the reality that life is short, that we're all going to die. That's where the living life backwards uh, idea comes from. Uh, life is short, we're all going to die, and that every blessing we have, including our work, is a gift from God and it's meant to be enjoyed. That's really a different way to, to look at things. Now, we sometimes use the word workaholic to describe someone who becomes absolutely consumed with their work. You know, perhaps they're pursuing money, maybe prestige that comes with a promotion, or maybe some other kind of personal recognition, but the person that just works, works, works. Even when they're at home, they're still, they're still working. Um, and that sort of striving in the workplace is an example of what Gib Gibson refers to as pursuing gain. It's the pursuit of treasure on earth, of pouring your life into things that uh, don't have eternal value. It's what the book of Ecclesiastes describes as vanity and striving after wind. So let me give you an example. My college roommate, <laughs> He was a brilliant student. He was, a, he was an electrical engineering major, but I was mechanical. We got along okay. He went on to get a master's degree in electrical engineering, and in the late 70s, he went to work for a company called Digital Equipment Corporation. I don't think they even exist anymore. But in the 70s, Digital Equipment Corporation was a manufacturer of mainframe computers. They were IBM's number one competitor. And what Jim's role was, was to design mainframe computers. And what he did was he worked 10 or 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week, and he did this for years. And he got to the point where he was totally burned out, and he spoke with me, and he said, this is so frustrating. I pour my life into a design, it hits the marketplace, and then the next week IBM announces a machine that's a little bit more powerful, a little bit faster. He said, I just feel like it's such a waste, and he quit. He retired in his early 40s. By then, he had earned enough money he could retire. But, but uh, it's just an example of uh, pouring your life into something that really, in the overall scheme of things, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, that's pursuing gain rather than gift. 
We've already seen that to work heartily, as for the Lord, to work hard uh, is something that we're called to do, but that does not mean being consumed with working. So don't fall into that trap of, of uh, letting work consume, consume you. Um, let's see. I want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can turn there if you want to, I'll, or I'll just read it. But uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Here's Solomon making some comments. Um, I'm kind of jumping in the middle here. There's, there's some things that he says uh, prior to the passage that I'm going to read that are interesting as well and kind of relate to the same thing. But for the sake of time, I'm going to start in Ecclesiastes 2, uh, verse 18. Solomon has been going through this exercise of using his God-given wisdom to try to figure out what's of value in life. What's life all about? What's the meaning of life? And uh, after running through a series of, of things that he just found to be futile and empty, one of them being work, he starts saying this in verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. What he's saying is I work hard at things, but then I'm going to die and it's going to go to somebody else. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. That's my roommate. <laughs> when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored for them. This, too, is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all of his labor and in all of his striving which, with which he labors under the sun? Because all the days of his task, is, all his days, his task is painful and grievous, even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. Do you ever feel like that? You can't sleep at night because you're concerned about things that are going on at work? Well, then listen to how he continues here. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is a gift from the hand of God. Now, he's not saying here, well, just adopt the lifestyle of eat, drink, and be merry and, and you know, uh, kind of numb yourself. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is recognize that your job, your work that you do is a gift from God and it's the means that God uses for you to put food on the table, to enjoy good food, to enjoy drink, and to enjoy life. That's what God calls you to do in your work, not to try to build some legacy <laughs> uh, that is eventually going to evaporate anyway. And then he says in verse 25, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? God's the only one who can bring enjoyment. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So there's some comments from Solomon on, on this, this issue of keeping a balance in life. Yes, you need to work heartily. You need to work hard as for the Lord. But, don't let your work consume you and kind of become the center of your life. So Solomon's point is that work is not for the endless pursuit of some sort of self-focused gain that won't benefit us anyway. Rather, we need to understand that work is a gift from God through which he blesses us with work's rewards, things like food and drink and enjoyment in life. So the bottom line is that we do need to glorify God by working hard, but we must not lose sight of the fact that satisfaction will never come from our career. It just won't. <laughs> we, 
Real satisfaction comes from recognizing our work and its rewards as gifts from the Lord, and we are to be thankful and to enjoy what he's given us. You know, real satisfaction does not come from interacting with the creation. That's what we do in our work. Real satisfaction comes from knowing the creator and interacting with, with him. That's really the, the, the point uh, that Solomon is making here. So, there's some, some food to, to think about. All right, so, we are to realize that work is God's design for us to bring him glory. We've seen that one way we can glorify him is by serving our earthly boss well. We also glorify him when we maintain a balanced life, seeing work as gift and not gain. And then here's a fourth principle, that we are to maintain an effective witness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, God reconciled, to him, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? To think that God is using you, that God is using me to make an appeal to people. <laughs> uh, that we are his representatives, we are his ambassadors. Well, how well do we do that? Well, let's take a moment and consider a few uh, keys to maintaining an effective witness. First of all, you want to witness through your conduct. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Apostle Peter reminds us to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. When he says that, he means unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That is, that they will be drawn to, to Christ and will glorify God on, on the day of visitation, the day of judgment. You know, unbelievers are watching you all the time to see if what you have is real. And that means you must make righteousness your aim. Proverbs 11.30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. You know, when you conduct your work by continually seeking to do what is right rather than what is expedient, what is easy, uh, doing just enough to get by, when you seek to do what is right, people will notice. And it provides a powerful testimony pointing to the Lord whom you serve. Also, work with dependence on the Lord, with honesty and integrity. Proverbs 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So the Lord is the one that we turn to when we've got an obstacle, we've got a problem that we don't understand. He gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And he is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Do you look to the Lord when you're faced with a challenge at work? You know, where's the first place you turn when things aren't going well and uh, you're you're stumped. You've got a problem. Um, do, you, do you talk to your friends to get some ideas? <laughs> or do you pray? Do you, do you turn to him? And are you known for your integrity, being true to your word, that, that what you say you're going to do, you do, and uh, that, that you're upright in the way you, you do things? You know, that's, that's another part of our uh, Christian conduct. 
Another aspect is to speak only that which is constructive and never destructive. Ephesians 4.29 is a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know, in the realm of our speech, it's really easy to be influenced by the people around us. When a group of coworkers are, they're all gathered together and they're complaining about the boss or they're complaining about some decision that's come down from, from corporate, it's just easy to kind of jump on the bandwagon and, and participate in that. Um, but we are not to be like that. Instead, you look at this verse, you know, we are to be uh, offering what is helpful, what is constructive, not what is hurtful. We're to guard our speech, we're to edify others. And we're to be diligent in carrying out assignments. Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, this obviously is kind of a broad summary, but this is one of many verses in the book of Proverbs exhorting us to be diligent in our work, which often results in reward. And we are never to fall praise fall prey to laziness, which typically leads to disaster. Proverbs 12.24 offers a related point that greater responsibility and privilege tend to go to the worker who is diligent. That proverb reads like this. It says, the hand of the diligent will rule. In other words, will become a manager. You can think of it that way. Uh, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. You don't want to be put to forced labor. So to be diligent, that is to be trustworthy, be a hard worker, is to provide a positive testimony of the Lord's work in our lives. When you do that, you will stand out in the organization as someone who's different. But in addition, in addition to uh, the witness of our conduct, we also witness through sharing Christ. Author Paul Little, writing on the subject of evangelism, he tells of a time when someone asked him this question. Uh, you know, Little was kind of an expert on, on evangelism, a, a very uh, influential figure. But somebody asked him this question, which do you think is more important in evangelism, what you do or what you say? And he, his reply was, well, that's kind of like asking, which is more important on an airplane, the right wing or the left wing? Yeah, and obviously his point was they're, they're both essential. You know, if, if all you do is, is you've got great conduct, really godly conduct. I mean, that's wonderful. But if you never open your mouth, people are going to tend to see you as just being a hard worker and a nice guy. And that's not what we are about. We need to be also opening our mouths, sharing Christ. We need to talk about the Lord as opportunities arise. It's essential. So that means we need to pray for opportunities. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. He said, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. You know, effective evangelism occurs when the Lord opens the door, when he prepares hearts, when he sets up uh, a situation. And you can see by, by these verses that uh, this was the Apostle Paul's need. Paul was saying, 
pray for me. Pray that the Lord is going to open up doors. So it's not a, a matter of technique. It's a matter of the Lord working in people's hearts. So here's a question. Do, do you pray for your coworkers? You know, do you have a prayer list? That are you praying for them on a regular basis, those who don't know uh, Christ? You know, I used to pray especially for the four shift supervisors who reported to me when I was the operations manager at the plant in Irving. I also used to keep a Bible in my desk so that I was prepared if an opportunity arose. This was before the, the days of smartphones, so I had a Bible. But. One day, I got into a serious conversation with one of my shift supervisors, and he was just kind of talking. He started talking about the direction of, of his life, which really surprised me. This guy, you talk about a tough guy. He had scars all over his chest. He grew up on the streets of San Antonio. He was a fighter, and he had been stabbed many times. Um, and yet, he was telling me that, you know, my, my life is just kind of a mess. It's kind of a shambles. And as he talked about the direction of his life, I asked him, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, I do. I would go straight to hell. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he knew it. He knew it. And so I proceeded to share the gospel with him. And I handed him the Bible and I had him read the key verses. He came from a Catholic background, and so we, we kind of, you know, dealt with, with that subject. And he understood the message, but I don't know if he ever came to faith. And he died of COVID in 2001. Whether he turned to Christ at, at the end, I, I don't know. I pray that he did. I hope that he did. Um, I had another shift supervisor. I'll take a minute to, to share this with you. I had another shift supervisor that I've been praying for, and he was one that his, his wife and his, his mother-in-law were pretty solid Christians. And he would come and talk to me periodically about, about Christianity. But his comment was always, um, yeah, you know, I, I believe that this stuff is true, but I have some things in my life that, that I want to do, you know, be before I make that commitment. It was always, yeah, maybe someday I'll turn to Christ. Maybe someday I'll do this, but, but I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, he died around 2013, 2014. He got uh, an illness, was hospitalized, and you know, was gone in a matter of a week or so. And I'm told by uh, a, a mutual friend of my, you know, mine who is a believer, uh, he thinks that that guy passed Christ in the hospital. Again, I don't know for sure. But the, the point is, <laughs> when, you know, pray for opportunities, and when you have opportunities, take them. Because you never know how long a person is going to be around. You never know what the future is going to hold. Also, you want to be a friend of sinners, but without participating in sin. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. <laughs> but then listen to this. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So what he's saying was, the people in Corinth were uh, keeping their, their distance from uh, immoral, worldly people, and he said, no, 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 those are the people that you need to be having relationships with. The immoral people I'm telling you not to associate with are the people that are in the church, <laughs> that, that claim to be Christians and are not uh, behaving that way. Don't have anything to do with them. So, you know, the point is, <laughs> it's often easy for us to gravitate toward people who are like us. 
you know, it's really easy to, to establish relationships with people that, that are easy for us to, to connect with and uh, who pursue lifestyles that are similar to our own, as opposed to co-workers who pursue really sinful lifestyles. But these are the very people that the Lord Jesus sought out. Jesus was called a friend of sinners, of tax collectors. <laughs> and uh, indeed he was because he came as a physician to heal the sick, not the well. And that's what we're to do as, as well. So that's, that's something, again, for you to, to think about. Also, you want to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, if you're working among unbelievers and if you are living according to the principles that we've been talking about from Scripture here uh, this evening, uh, people are going to notice. And you're likely to get some questions, you know, why, why do you do this? Or why don't you do that? Uh, you're likely to get some questions about what you do and what you don't do. And when that happens, be ready to tell them it's because of your relationship with the Lord. So, maintain an effective witness at work, both through your conduct and through your words, sharing the truth of Christ. And that brings us to the fifth and last of our principles. And this one has a bit more to do with what's going on inside each one of us. Guard your personal holiness. First Peter 1.16, the apostle quotes the command from Leviticus that we are, to be, we are to be holy as the Lord is holy. That's what we're called to do. But as you may have discovered, the workplace can be a truly challenging <laughs> uh, environment in which to pursue personal holiness. Often the workplace is thoroughly pagan, and it's without the protective influence of our family and our Christian friends. And that was certainly the situation in my career. Over the course of my 39 years at Owens Corning, I had precious few encounters with, with believers. I was kind of a, in, an, in an island of profanity. <laughs> uh, it was an interesting situation. So with that in mind, here's just a few key reminders. First one is guard your tongue. Ephesians 4.29, we looked at this verse earlier, but I want to repeat a, a portion of it with just a little different emphasis. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And then chapter 5, verse 4 adds, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You know, if you're in an environment where bad language and off-color jokes are kind of the norm, it's kind of what everybody does, don't adopt even a little bit of that lifestyle. And, uh, you know, there could be a temptation there to, to do that sort of thing. Uh, cuss words are often used in the workplace as a, as a way of making a, uh, an emphasis, making a point strong. Um, I mean, my boss used to, used to do that all the time. And, and it's a way to try to kind of become one of the guys, kind of be seen as, uh, you know, fitting in with everybody else. Well, I was still in that mode early in my Christian life. This was when I was in the Air Force. And the Lord used a, a really painful experience to, to change my habits. And uh, I don't have time for that illustration. I'll tell you later if, if, you're, if you're interested. All right. We're almost done here. <laughs> Next, avoid the traps presented by business travel. I don't know how many of you do business travel 
again, the last 12 years of my career, uh, I traveled on the average about every other week, uh, you know, about, about a 50% uh, travel rate. And business travel, believe me, presents another set of temptations. If you're in a place where nobody knows you and you are in a hotel room by yourself with a TV offering all kinds of garbage and you're thinking, well, there's nobody here, there's nobody uh, looking, and there's all kinds of trash available, beware. You know, it's critical to keep in mind that the reality is you are never alone. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. That's Proverbs 15.3. A very helpful verse is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with a temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Well, again, last 12 years of my career, I did a lot of travel. And what I found to be immensely helpful was to think through, sorry, <laughs> to think through in advance what are the situations that I'm likely to be in and prepare in advance for those situations. I found where I would get into trouble is if I decided, well, I'll just decide when the moment comes. Not a good strategy. You know, when you're, you're in a group setting and a group is all wanting to do this or all wanting to do that and you haven't really thought through how you're going to handle that situation, uh, you can easily get led into to things that are undesirable. But if you are thinking through, okay, uh, this week I'm going to be by myself in a whole hotel room. When my work is done at 5 o'clock in the evening, I will be by myself. So what I would do was I would plan how I was going to fill up my time. So I would do things like I would plan physical exercise. I would go walking in the evening. I would uh, take my Bible and study materials with me, and I, I would work on the next Sunday school lesson that I had coming up. I would spend time on the phone with my wife and with friends, with people here at the church. I would fill my time up with things that I knew were constructive and important and stay away from everything else. If I was in a situation where um, sometimes I would go with group meetings and there would be a whole group of people and they would be wanting to do certain things. I would decide ahead of time what things I would go along with and what things I would say no to. It makes it so much easier if you decide ahead of time and, and you stick to that decision. You, you, you don't get led down a path that, uh, that you regret later on. You can avoid sin traps by doing that. All right, one more. The question of alcohol. <laughs> You know, in a secular work environment, the issue of alcohol consumption during after-work socializing, cocktail hours before group dinners, late nights in the hospitality room uh, at the hotel after group meetings, sporting events, it's commonplace. And while the Bible does not teach that alcohol consumption is sin, it does teach that overindulgence certainly is a sin. Proverbs 20, verse 1 reads, Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So the question becomes, okay, if alcohol is not a sin, but if overindulging in alcohol is a sin, you know, where do I draw the line? Well, this is not an issue of God's law, but it's an issue of conscience. So there is no uh, right or wrong answer as it applies to all people. But here's some questions for you to think about. What am I choosing to do, and what's my motivation for doing it? That would be one question. Another question would be, how is my decision likely to influence other people? 
What I personally decided to do, and this, I did this at the start of my career, I knew that I was going to be in these situations all the time, and I was. And I just decided that I just wasn't going to drink in those situations at all. Now, if I'm invited to a wedding and there's champagne, I will drink champagne. If somebody invites me to their house and they serve wine, I will, I will drink a glass of wine. But in these social settings with unbelieving people where drinking, drinking, drinking was a big deal, I wouldn't drink at all. <laughs> and I really stood out, and I had people ask me, why don't you drink? Do you think it's wrong? And it would kind of lead into, in, into discussions. But uh, and that's, I don't know if that's the right decision. I mean, that's just what I decided to do, and that's certainly not, not necessarily for, for everybody. Um, but I also knew that there were people in those settings that had alcohol problems, and I didn't want to do anything that would encourage them. And I found that when I didn't drink, there would be other people that would also choose not to drink because they saw me not drinking. So anyway, well, that's it. <laughs> so there's the five key principles. Uh, I won't read down through them again, but uh, you can see them there on the screen. And again, this is by no means a complete list, but uh, these are certainly some means by which you can bring God glory through your work. And perhaps there's some other points that you have thought of, or perhaps... Um, maybe some of the things that I have said have brought questions to your mind. And so, let's see if you have any questions. <laughs> yes. When I do have a believer at work? Well, actually, there was a period of time uh, working at the Owens Corning uh, roofing plant in Irving where I don't know if any of you remember Pitch Sundrum. Some of you may. He's from India. Um, he was a believer, and he was a countrysider. And what we would do is, you know, uh, sometimes our schedules didn't fit, but when they did, sometimes we would get together over lunch hour, and uh, we would study a passage of Scripture together. Uh, we would kind of compare notes on conversations that we would have for people, people that we were praying for. So there's, there's things like that that, that that you can do that's, that's really encouraging when you have someone like that that's, uh, that's really on the same wavelength with you, is, is just think about ways that, you can edify each other, again, through, through Bible study, through praying together, through each having a prayer list where you're praying for people in the organization and, and watching for opportunities to share Christ. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yes? I would add also, think how precious it is to have fellow believers at church and how um, less of a likelihood of find believers at work. So if you define one, latch onto them, especially if they're a mature believer, and do pray w with one another and play, pray for, for one another so that they're encouraged because the same um, temptations you face are the same ones they face. The same coworkers that are troubling, that it's hard to show Christ-like love to, are the ones that they face too. So you're praying for one another, encouraging one another in that same environment. Yeah. And I, I like the same situation. I had a coworker who I didn't think he was a believer until obviously we'd start talking about church that we, you know, spent Sundays at. And uh, one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life, and we prayed uh, for almost two years consistently for his mother's uh, to come to the Lord. And he's also Indian, and um, so that was a challenging uh, dynamic. And she did come to the Lord. Yeah, uh, it was just yeah. so encouraging. And, and to hear him weekly yeah. talk to me about how the Muslims who are Indian uh, – really hated him because yeah. <laughs> he was so vocal in sharing the gospel. He yeah. just didn't. He was 
he was a contractor, so he didn't care. He got let go. He just was there to share the gospel. So, okay. Thanks. Anyone else? <laughs> I'll run it up. Hey, um, so how, how do you avoid the uh, hindsight 2020? So I'll give you another example. Uh, let's say I, I'm at work, right? And, you know, they say that experience is what gets you the knowledge that you need. But how can you uh, not have those, like, moments where you're like, man, I wish I would have knew this. Does that make sense? I'm not sure quite follow what you're saying. So, so to get ahead of the curve, if that makes sense. So, like, there's so many things where you say, man, I wish I would have known this. Mm-hmm. So how do you uh, avoid some of that, I wish I would have known this? I know it comes with the territory, but how can you, uh, I guess, get a step on it? You know, I, I guess it's just a matter of throughout your career, you, you, you just want to be learning all you can, kind of every opportunity that you get. And, and when you get to a point where you look back and think, oh, I wish I had known then what I, what I know now, just recognize that, you know, the Lord is sovereign over your life, and he, he's going to direct you, and he's going to lead you into the experiences that you need uh, to build your character, to make you more like Christ. And, uh, yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about, oh, I missed that opportunity back then. I, I wouldn't worry about that, but just, just keep moving forward. Steve, I have a question for you. For some of these guys who work in the secular world where there may be some restrictions or difficulties in evangelizing with coworkers, what are some practical ways that you've found working in your workplaces that you've found have been useful, practical ways to do so? That, that's really a good point. Um, in my situation, the, most of the people that I was working around were people that reported to me. So I, I never used my my faith as kind of a, Oh, I've, I've got the person in my office now as a captive audience, so I'm going to hit them with the gospel. You know, and I think that's, that's where the prayer comes in, of just praying that, that the Lord would work in their heart, that, that they would bring the subject up, that they would open the door. And, and the Lord was faithful to do that. So uh, what I did not do is, is just kind of go around proselytizing. Or, uh, and the work environment, has, has I'm sure it's changed. Um, you know, our culture has changed so drastically just in the last few years. And so I, I can't speak to the current environment. I, you know, many of you perhaps are, are dealing with challenging things where, where you're being told, uh, you know, don't speak about religion because it's divisive. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I would say pray <laughs> it would be the, 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 the key to that and, and allow the Lord to open the doors. Uh, yeah, and I would say uh, what I've found over the years is I always, when I'm at a lunch, a business meeting, it doesn't matter, I always excuse myself and bow and pray silently. Mm-hmm. And that says so much that I've had so many people over the years that after the event will come up to me and acknowledge that. Yeah. And it kind of opens the door then to have conversations. So that's one little thing you can do where you're not, you're not, you know, voicefully going out. Yeah but you're in fact drawing him in. So that, that's, that's been beneficial. Yeah, I had a, a, a commentary on Hebrews sitting on my desk for, for a period of time, and that raised some eyebrows, but leaving a Bible out. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that you can do that I, people notice. People have their antennas up all the time, and, and they'll see you as, as being different. 
And they'll wonder, they may not ask you, but they'll wonder what makes you tick. And, uh, you know, perhaps then one day the Lord will create that spark where they'll start asking questions. Looks like Jackson's good. Raise your hand high so I can see. I took a clue from Emrys Varghese, if you guys know him from church. He works in the tech world at Fidelity, and um, he does um, technology communications just like I do. He's on a higher level, on a more technological side, and he would print up things and things say things that have to do with biblical principles, right? He would say, here are the Ten Commandments of how we're going to do our network security, um, so forth. And so I took a clue from that, and when I talked to coworkers and um, I just mentioned things that are obviously biblical, right? Things like, well, I think one time I talked to my boss and said, well, if you're the praying type, let's pray this works, works out. And she called me immediately right after that to let me know, like, I really appreciate, like, I know we're not supposed to talk about this, but I really appreciate that you're bold about your faith. Uh, another time I was talking to a guy, you know, when, if any of you are on video chats quite often, um, no one's going to see your Christian T-shirt. No one's going to see necessarily that, you know, you're, you're uh, visibly a believer, um, but having conversations, even if you're remote, uh, one time I was having a conversation with a guy, and um, I noticed he had an ichthus ring from James Avery. And I've noticed it for years. I was like, hey, you know, I noticed you wear that ring. You know, is that significant for anything? He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I was like, really? And I was like, well, tell me about your testimony. So he did, and he was like, here's my Bible. I read it all the time. It's sitting right here at work. And I picked up my Bible. I was like, me too, man. This is great. <laughs> And that's just how the Lord works as long as you have the, the intentionality to really connect with other believers. Um, and really, and, you know, for him, in that situation, he uh, is church searching. And so it was a great conversation to say, hey, I encourage you to come to our church, check it out online, and um, look for solid biblical teaching churches. Um, I just, I'm going to add to that as well. I mean, um, everyone kind of brings up really great points, but kind of just seeming like a a non-insane person to people while also being a Christian is a good thing. I've my one of my bosses is a lesbian, and uh, I she'll ask me what am I doing after work. It's like oh I'm serving at a church, and she's like oh I would never have guessed that you're a very rational normal person. It's like <laughs> where what? <laughs> so even like even just that, just being a normal person and then saying yeah I'm a Christian is good enough to actually just show the light to people, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why it's important to uh, you develop relationships with people that you know are not believers, you know, as long as you're not sinning. Um, but, but keeping those connections, uh, it, it, it's really good, really helpful. I can't remember the first example, but could you tell us the Air Force story or the other one? You oh, an about, about my language? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is embarrassing. but uh, Sorry. I'll you can do it. the other one, though. No, no I, I, I'll go ahead and, and, and tell it. But this is an example of how um, when we are not walking the way we should with the Lord, uh, he has a way of getting our attention and uh, getting us to uh, sit up and fly right. I had only been a believer, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half. So I was, I was a baby Christian. And... Uh, uh, Air Force guys, you know, you got to be, you got to be tough, and you got to use bad language, and you know, you don't let anybody push you around. Well, I worked in a laboratory where I was uh, in, in kind of a, in a back room, you know, one of several labs, and there was test equipment that would be brought into the lab to be calibrated, 
And so there was a, a clerk up front, and when somebody would come in with a piece of test equipment, uh, he would sign it in, and then he would put it on a shelf, and we would come and pick it up and take it back to the lab to work on it. Well, there was a visitor one day who, who came uh, into our shop, and he was talking to the guy that checks the equipment in. And uh, the guy that checks the equipment in got on the PA system, and he, he called me, said, you got a, a visitor up here to see you. And he referred to me as Airman Packard. Well, I had just been promoted to sergeant, and I said to him, I ain't no blankety-blank airman. Well, you know who the visitor was? He was a lieutenant colonel, and he attended the church that I was in. You, you talk about being embarrassed. Boy, I don't know what shade of red I turned, but uh, I, I never used foul language again after that. I mean, I was, I was cured. Wow. It's, it's sort of, sort of <laughs> like, sort of like when the Lord took Israel and sent him into exile. He cured him of idolatry. Yeah, yeah. They came back and pursued other sins, right. legalism, but, but he cured him of idolatry. Yeah, um, that's the Lord's discipline, you know. And I'm grateful that that He did that. I, I needed that, because I, I was still kind of living with one foot in each arena. I still wanted to be one of the guys, and, but He said. No, 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 you're mine, <laughs> and you're, you're going to act like one of mine. And so I started doing that. So, Well, let me just tell you one other story, too. Uh, I mentioned Pitch, this fellow from India who attended uh, Countryside. Let me just tell you uh, how I got to know him and how he wound up coming here. Um, I got sent to our headquarters in Toledo, Ohio, for a class on some computer software, and uh, uh, most of the people attending that class were from corporate headquarters in Toledo, and so at the end of the workday, they would all go home. Well, one of the other students in the class was Pitch Sundrum. He was from a plant in North Carolina, and uh, after class, I went to a restaurant, and I was sitting at a table by myself, and I looked across the room, and there was Pitch sitting at a table by himself, and I just knew that this guy was from India. That's all I knew. So I went over to his table, and I asked him, I said, do you mind if I join you? And he said, no, I don't mind at all. And so I started asking him uh, about his faith. I said, are you Hindu? And he said, no, I'm Christian. And I said, really? <laughs> you know, I was kind of prepared to share Christ with him, and uh, I didn't get to do that. Well, he proceeded to tell me that uh, he was in a church in North Carolina. It was a charismatic church. And he said he just wasn't very happy with that church. Well, we finished our meal, and we stepped outside, and we talked outside that restaurant probably for the next two hours. And he was telling me about all his frustrations with his church and uh, uh, that he just really needed to find a good church. And I, I started telling him about countryside and, and what life is like here. And he thought, boy, that really sounds great. Well, fast forward about two years, three years, I was in my job where I was traveling around the country. I was officing out of the Irving Shingle Manufacturing Plant, but I wasn't on plant staff. I was going around to all of these other plants. Well, there was one day that the plant had their daily staff meeting, and for whatever reason, well, I know what the reason was, but <laughs> the Lord led me to sit in on that meeting, which I didn't normally do. And at the end of the meeting, the the plant manager and one of the other department managers were having a conversation. They were talking about the fact 
that they had been searching for months for a technical leader to come to the Irving plant. And they couldn't find anybody that was willing to move here or anybody that wanted that job. And the plant manager was kind of throwing up his hands. He said, but I did just get a, a message that there's some other guy out there that they want me to consider. It's a guy named Pitch. And I looked at him and I said, Pitch Sundrum? And he said, yeah, do you know him? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, would you like to be involved in interviewing him? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and so there were a team of us that, that interviewed him. And it's interesting, there was one guy on that team, he happened to be uh, the operations manager, kind of the number two man in the plant, was very much opposed to bringing Pitch on, on board. He said, he, he's, he's from India, he, does, he doesn't have enough flexibility. And I said, what are you talking about? He's, you know, he has left India, left everything familiar, come here, he's, he got a graduate degree at, Mich at uh, Arizona State University. Uh, he's demonstrated a lot of flexibility. And anyway, the plant manager bought in with what I said and not what, the, what this other guy said and, and brought him here. And the very first Sunday he was here, he came to Countryside. And he attended every Sunday after. But, uh, and I still, well, in fact, I was texting with him today. I, I talked to him on the phone regularly. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, again, it's amazing how the, the Lord will orchestrate these things and, and, and bring surprises into your life that, that you just would never expect. It's, uh, yeah, well, yeah, Noah. Uh, my question has to do with, uh, uh, your, again, what you said, what we were saying earlier about uh, respecting those in authority over you, but mm -hmm. uh, but especially in the category of uh, being in the church, because uh, there may be, and uh, I don't know, how, there may be a number of us who are at times scheduled to work on a Sunday during church, even, and maybe and maybe we've it repeatedly emphasized to them, hey, I don't want to be scheduled on Sundays during church, and they do it anyway. How do you balance that respect for them even when they're unreasonable, but not forsaking the assembling as, together as is the habit of some at the same time? Uh, <laughs> that's a hard question. I mean, it, it, it really is. Um, because obviously there's some people here that are in roles that uh, there's work that really needs to be done while everybody is assembled here. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the way that I would tend to look at that is um, I knew going into it that th this is what I was going to be asked to do, and therefore I'm going to do it, and I will, uh, you know, worship in, in the evening service or, you know, make, make other allowances to make sure that I am uh, engaged in worshiping the Lord. I'm not, you know, kind of short that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm being responsible to do what I'm being asked to do. Yes. Um, I, th I think uh, there might be some misunderstanding with what Noah asked. Oh, okay. It's, it's not here that he's being asked to work on a Sunday. It's his other job. Okay. And they're constantly asking him to work on Sundays. So, ah, he, so I it's, see. it's okay. a secular company asking him. I, I think he wants to know the balance there if your other company is asking work on Sunday and he's refusing. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I guess what you would have to weigh is um, if if you know going into it that this is going to be part of it, I mean, maybe it's something that you didn't expect and it's kind of been sprung on you. Um, but if it's something that you knew going into it was going to be part of it, um, uh, yeah, then it seems like if you kind of agreed to do that, then, then you need to do that. But you might, if it really becomes troublesome and becomes frequent, you might consider maybe I ought to look for another job. 
By the way, that was a whole, I, was, I thought about adding a, a, a point number six on here about determining God's will. When, when is it time to look for another job and how do you go about it? That, that's a whole other subject. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that becomes more of a conscience decision too yeah. on what you should be doing, obviously being prayerful in that. But I think to your point, what you were saying, Steve, is that you know, if you do work a job where you're called to work on a Sunday, you know, that you, you can't forsake the other times that you can assemble with the saints, like on Wednesday nights or home fellowship times. There's different opportunities that you have available to you that could work with the schedule that you have if you're required to work on a Sunday. But obviously, it's important to spend that time Sunday mornings with the saints, so being prayerful in those decisions. Yeah. So. All right. I think we've got about uh, a few more minutes, so we got a few more minutes. Uh, does anybody ever have any questions? Anybody else? Mick? This is just a follow-up to the situation that you just shared with us about being in the military and finding yourself uh, inadvertently uh, sitting in front of a group. Maybe it was, uh, you know, it was embarrassing to you, and, and certainly it is. But I just want to share with people that uh, God is very gracious. If we pray for opportunity, we're going to get opportunity. Mm. Sometimes we're going to handle it well and sometimes not so much. Even in those times where you make a mistake. And I had the same thing. I was, I was right there with you. I was a military guy. I was a New Jersey guy. I could curse with the best of them. But I know God was asking me to knock that off. And I'd been with a group for about six weeks. And I was telling a Jersey story. And sometimes that just came out the way it came out. And I said a bad word. Right? As soon as I said it, I was immediately struck by it. I went... I'm sorry, fellas, I didn't mean to say it that way. What I meant to say was this. And I just kept going on. Yeah. To which they said, wait a minute, time out, time out. You've been with us for six weeks around more cursing than, than anybody could count. You finally let one fly, and then you apologize for it. And that opened up an opportunity yeah. to, to talk about why I was hard on myself in that particular case, but why I felt like. God was asking me to clean up. God will even take the bad stuff and use it as an opportunity if you will be praying for opportunity and you view it that way. But we have to be humble. Yeah. We have to fess up right away. Don't let it slide like, okay, that was only one. Maybe he thinks I'm still a Christian or whatever, whatever it was. I don't know if they knew I was a Christian or if they didn't at that point. I, they just knew I didn't curse. Yeah. But I got to tell them because I did curse. So is God gracious or, or what? Thanks, Mick. That's, that's a great point. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Steve, for bringing the, the word for us this evening. Oh, my, my pleasure. Yes, thank you. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, if that's okay, and then uh, we are dismissed for the evening. Steve's going to be sticking around for a little bit just to answer sure. questions privately. Sure. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, are just so grateful for work, Lord, uh, as, as it was taught this evening, Lord, it is a gift that you give uh, for us. It's the means of which we use to uh, glorify you, Lord, so that you can provide for us also in that manner, Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, for the work that you give us and the different variety of work that we have, Lord. And we're just so thankful, again, that uh, we have the calling each day to go to those jobs, to be representations ambassadors of your word, Lord, the 
to live out that truth to others, to be a testimony, Lord, to others. We're just so grateful uh, that you have chosen us to be those representations, Lord, of the gospel. Lord, we pray for the men here as they uh, look forward to their work week this week, Lord, that there would be opportunities for them to share the gospel, to share the good news, to uh, evangelize to those, Lord, who are, are dead, Lord, and need to be saved. Lord, we thank you again for this evening, for this time of fellowship, for the time of the word. Lord, we are so grateful again for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.